Amen. Well, if you haven't already done so, please turn to Matthew 18. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 17, today specifically looking at verse 16. Now, when sinners, uh, sorry, when believers sin against one another or hurt one another, it causes conflicts, it causes uh, divisions within the church, it, it ruins friendships and relationships, sometimes that have gone on for years. It divides people that God has united in Christ. So what should you do when this happens? It's not really if, it's when. What should you do when this happens? When somebody hurts you, what do you do? Do you give them the cold shoulder until they finally acknowledge they're wrong and come begging for your forgiveness? Or do you call your best friends and vent everything to them and, and tell them everything this person did against you? Or should you do like one Southern Baptist so-called pastor did? Challenge the person to a duel. Ask them to come outside and f- settle this like men. I don't make that up. I do not make that up, unfortunately. No. You don't do any of those things. The world does those things. That's how the world solves its conflicts or, re- or, or reacts to its conflicts. As a believer... You must respond very differently to conflict. You are to do none of those things. You are to to walk in the spirit, to walk in love, to walk in humility, to control your temper, to control your tongue, to control your criticism. And you are to pursue reconciliation. That's not easy to do. But that is what you're to do it. And you're to do it for the glory of God, your Savior. For, and for the love of God, motivated by the love of God and motivated by your love of your neighbor, those around you, those in your family, those in your church family. So, so how do you do that? How do you pursue reconciliation? Well, God provides for us in his word in Matthew 18, a very simple process, simple in outline. The Greek's not difficult. The English is not difficult. There's no excuses for us not understanding this. It's simply a matter of being taught it and then explaining how we practice this. And we'll go about that. We'll continue that this morning. Let's read together Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won you, brother. If he did, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The Lord Jesus is the head of the church. And he has given you a responsibility to pursue reconciliation. And he's given you a process to use in pursuing that reconciliation. We must implement this in our lives, in our families, and in our church. Now, to help us learn what the process of reconciliation looks like, I'm going to be borrowing an extended illustration from Alexander Strzok's book called If You Bite and Devour One Another. I highly recommend the books. Very, very good. But this morning, we're going to be visiting or watching the lives of Carl and Jim right, through various portions of the sermon. So Carl and Jim are two Christians who attend the same church. 
Carl's an influential businessman. And he asked Jim, who's a contractor, to put a foundation, to, to lay the foundation and to put the framing up for his new house. When, Jim com- when Jim's company finishes the job, he sends Carl the bill. Many weeks go by. Nothing happens. Jim calls Carl. Carl doesn't return Jim's phone calls. Jim's company is running in, in tight financially, and he needs the money to be able to pay his employees. Finally, Carl responds by telling Jim he simply can't pay. His business is not doing well. And he's experiencing economic problems and just can't pay him. Now, as Jim Jim prays about what to do, as he considers what to do, through an unusual series of of events, uh, Jim finds out Carl actually has personal savings built up and investments that he could use to actually pay the bill. Now, when Jim calls Carl and tells him this, Carl goes ballistic. How did you find this out? And stop prying into my private business. And he doesn't really deal with the issue of non-payment. The the relationship gets fractured totally. But at church, you know, people can put on a fake face when they hit the front door of a church building, right? That's what Carl does. He comes in, he sings in the choir. Even through the week, he goes to the men's Bible study and everything is, he seems okay. But he does ignore Jim totally, as if Jim didn't exist. So he even tells Jim at one point that Jim is unethical and that the business deal just completely has gone south and has gone sour because of the economy. And and, and Jim just should accept the loss. So where does this leave Jim? What should he do? What would you do if you were the business owner needing to be paid? Well, the Lord gives us instructions that apply to situations like this. Just to kind of review what we covered last week. And in Matthew 18, 15, we're given the initial instructions. And I showed you that we have an imperative to go. An imperative means it's a command. It's not optional. If you're a believer and there's, there's a relationship fracture or you see your brother sin, in this case, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So the first thing is recognizing that you have an obligation to go. Right? I really emphasize that part that God commands you to go. But another part of it I want, I want to show you to help motivate you to go is remembering the grace of God. So when, when, when God gives us a command, we need to recognize his command and go. But God doesn't want us just to obey begrudgingly. He does want us to obey, but he wants us to obey with a glad heart. So as you think about what it takes to obey the Lord, think not only, yes, this is a command of my Lord that I need to obey, but also think about the abundant grace that God has poured upon your life and how you didn't deserve any of that. And he poured out that grace upon you so that you might obey his commands. So recognizing you need to go. And, that, and really the first step is, is recognizing you need to go. The, the first literal step is actually going. Go and show him his fault. And we looked at that, well, what that looked like last week. Um, when, someone, when you see your brother sin, or there's some fault, or there's some, someone seems like there's something, um, they have something against you, right? the first thing you need to do is, is to stop and consider, can I simply overlook the offense? Can I let my love 
overlook the offense. And what, what that means is that if to overlook the offense, it's, it's completely gone. It doesn't impact your relationship. It doesn't impact your conversations. If you can let love cover your sin, then let it do that. But you also need to ask, is it appropriate to cover the sin with love? Because sometimes you can cover it with love, but it's not appropriate because of the person's sin or the pattern in their life or how it's impacting others. So if you, if you decide that you can let love cover the offense, then you're done. But if the answer is no, if you can't let love cover the offense, then you've got some preparation to do. And I mentioned this, but I want to review it, just kind of give you a high level uh, this, this morning. You've got to prepare so that you can walk in the spirit, walk in love, walk in humility, control your tongue, control your criticism, control your anger. That takes preparation. That just doesn't happen. So pray for yourself and pray for the other person. Check your attitudes, your emotions, and, and the motives for going. And commit yourself to speaking gently. And the scripture says a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs it up. So you want to do everything you can do to help that person respond positively. And also understand which scriptures you're going to use. And, and, and study them so that you're using them properly in context. Right? Because you want to use scripture to show the other person his fault. It's not just your opinion versus their opinion. You're going to point to God's word and, and show them where it says that in God's word. That's, that's your goal with that. Then, then determine... What information might you need to ask the person? Maybe you don't have a complete picture. And you should probably assume that you don't have a complete picture. So go prepared to ask good questions. Right? Probing questions to, to find out uh, maybe extenuating circumstances or find out what was going on. Right? So that you have a better understanding of the situation. And then also we talked about thinking through what encouragement you can provide a person. Because right? lots of times we just focus so on the negative that that's all we get to, but that's not the pattern in the scripture typically. Typically, Paul or even Jesus commends uh, Christians or a church where they can commend them. Right? So, so find areas to build up. Now, that's not puffing up. You're looking for true things. You're not looking for false things. This isn't, this isn't manipulating people. This is encouraging them where they're doing what's right. So look for those. And then another thing is just preparing your own heart to receive some criticism. Because sometimes in a conflict, and usually in a conflict, you contributed to that a little bit somehow. Right? So just be prepared to listen, to learn, to be humble, and, and respond to things like that. And then choose a time and place that's conducive for talking to the person. Sometimes you want to do it right away, but that timing is not good. The person's still angry and upset, and they're just not going to listen well. So you just need to, to pray for the right time, pick the right time and setting to do that. But once, once that preparation is done, then you, need to, then you need to go. And remember, it's just between the two of you at this point. Just you and the other person. Uh, you should initiate the step of reconciliation, even if the other person is not a Christian. Right? This is something you can do with any relationship. And God wants you to do it with any relationship. Now, the, the pattern that Jesus gives is, is a, a, a general pattern. He doesn't deal with like special circumstances uh, in this pattern. So this is the pattern to follow in, it will say, 98% of the cases that, of relational difficulty or when you see somebody in sin. But there are special cases, right? So Jesus isn't addressing those. But what do I mean by special cases? For example, like if a, if a woman needs to confront uh, a man about his sin, needs to 
needs to go show him his fault. A married woman may need to involve her husband. A single woman may need to involve another woman in the church or perhaps a deacon or an elder of the church. Um, in the case of a child needing to reconcile with an adult, it's appropriate for that child to involve their parents, one or two of their parents, right, to help them walk them through that process of reconciliation. And in cases of physical or sexual abuse, that the person who's been abused should not go to that person, to the abuser individually uh, and secretly. That is something they need help walking through, right? In, in the case of many cases, civil laws have been broken and the police need to be brought into those cases. And pastors need to help, help shepherd and protect people through that. They need to help those who have been abused as well as protect people from false accusation. It works both ways, right? So those are kind of special cases that Jesus is not addressing. But I, but I thought it was helpful, be helpful if, if I mention that. And, and I also want to mention the fact that sometimes the sin is known publicly very quickly. So if it's a sin that's known publicly, even within the church, then there is no, there's no privacy. So you, you, is, you could still go to that person privately, but it would be appropriate to take someone along with you even at, at that stage because it's public information. So I also want to state that all of us are hard learners. All of us are slow listeners, right? So we be, I'm going to emphasize it in a couple of places that we need to be patient. We need to be persistent. So Jesus just talks about this as if it's a straight line process. But at each one of these steps, often you kind of got to repeat it and, and make sure the person understood you, right? This isn't a process to rush through, to push someone out of the church. Because the goal of this is restoration. The goal of this is winning your brother, so we want to go real slow and make sure that they're understanding. Maybe they don't accept everything that you said in the beginning, but they grasp a little bit and you've got to come back another time to help them understand more of that. Realize that if your brother listens to you, you have won your brother. What does it mean to win your brother? It means he acknowledges his fault, his sin uh, against you or against somebody else. That he asks for forgiveness but asking for forgiveness that, and granting forgiveness, that's not the final goal. The final goal is restoration. It's reconciliation. So that relationship is everything that God intends it to be. So realize that, that the goal isn't just forgiveness, but reconciliation. Now let's go back and kind of apply this situation with Jim and Carl. Apply, apply this process to Jim and Carl's situation. So Jim cannot afford simply to overlook Carl's non-payment since Jim needs to pay his employees. So he carefully thinks through how he should approach Carl, what scriptures he would use to, to justify his position, uh, scriptures that talk about speaking truth, letting your yes be yes, your no be no. God wants his people to fulfill their, their contracts and what they agree to do uh, as long as it's within their power to do that. So Jim calls Carl, sets up a time for them to talk. And Jim confronts Carl with this in a, in a loving, gentle voice. But the meeting doesn't go well. Jim, Jim tells Carl that he sinned against him by, by not paying. But Carl focuses only on the fact that somehow Jim found out about his private finances, his savings and his investments. He accuses Jim of being a gossip, 
and having sinned against him by telling other people about their financial disagreement, which he had no, no evidence of that. In Carl's mind, Jim should just let it go. He should let the matter is over. It, it doesn't need to be pursued. Right? Both men walk away frustrated and somewhat angry. What should Jim do now? Well, if your brother sins, you go show him his fault. But what do you do when your brother doesn't listen? What do you do then? Right? Then you move to step two in the process of corrective discipline, as you see in verse 16 of Matthew 18. So pursuing reconciliation means if your brother doesn't listen, then you're going to involve others to help you. Right? So when must you seek help? Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. The key phrase there, but if he doesn't listen, that's when you must seek help. If he doesn't listen, how do you know when a person reaches that stage where they're refusing to listen? Is it when he seems just to brush aside your concerns and, and tells you that he'll think and pray about it, but he doesn't really show much concern? Is it when he fails to acknowledge, he immediately brushes you off and tells you he doesn't want to discuss it and that you're wrong? Is it, is it when you give him a week or a, maybe a, two weeks to, to think it over and there's no action? Is that, is that when you take it to this next step? How much time should you give the person? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us any kind of time frame because each circumstance is different. You've got to use wisdom. It's a wisdom issue. So you think through things like, is the person's sin going to hurt him or hurt someone else if you let it, if you let it go? I mean, if you just give it more time, give them time to think about it. Um, if, if the sin continues, will the unity of the church be compromised? Is it something that's going to just, just going to spread uh, like yeast within, within a loaf of bread? And has to be dealt with quicker rather than slower. Is the person a, you also need to consider whether the person is a, is a new believer, an immature believer, or a mature believer. All these things factor into how much time you give the other person to kind of think through what you said to them. Right? They need time to, to marinate in what, you, what you've confronted them. I've had people talk to me about things that I didn't agree with at start, to start with. But then thinking through the scriptures they used and thinking through what they said, I became convinced that they were right. right? So you're just like that. You need time to think it over. So, so don't be impatient. In general, you should be as patient as you can be since biblical love is patience. One of the qualities of love, 1 Corinthians thirteen four, And Paul echoes the need for patience again and again. Uh, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, I'm going to read that to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. So you're, you're patient with the unruly, you're patient with the faint-hearted, you're patient with the weak. You know, being patient with someone who has sinned against you or sinned against someone that you love, it's, it's not an easy thing, but it is called for. Use the time waiting uh, to, to pray for them. You know, sometimes when you're waiting on someone and you can become anxious, especially as a parent, if your child's due and 
you're waiting on them to arrive and they're late and you can become impatient and you can begin to get angry that they're not on time. But instead of doing that, pray for them. Right? Pray for them to grow. Pray for them to be saved, but pray for them to grow in maturity. Same thing with waiting on someone to come back to you or to respond with what you have told them. That you, you just you use that time, instead of getting angry with them or impatient with them, use the time to pray for them. Persevere with them. Prayerfully consider whether you need to go back to the person and how often you need to go back. The Holy Spirit can change someone instantly. Often, he takes more time than that. He's patient with us and he works with us and he accommodates himself to us. He doesn't deal with all your sin at once. Right? So you are in the process of transformation. So understand that's what's going on in the other person's life as well. I've heard of more than one instance where the person did indeed come to agree with the one who showed him his fault when he was given enough time. He didn't initially, but it took some time. So be patient. Emphasize, be patient. But when there's a, that person refuses totally, there's no forward progress, you don't seem to be making any headway in the thinking, or perhaps the situation is, is serious enough that you, that you can't wait any longer, then you must move it forward. You've got to move to the next step of seeking help from others. Right? And that stage is when you're as confident as you can be and the person has reached a kind of a dead end. There's no forward progress. There's no change or transformation. There's no consideration of what you have confronted them with. So you need to go get help. You need to go recruit others. And, and Matthew 16 tells us this. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So how much help do you get? Take it literally. Two, one or two others. So that there are two to three witnesses. This is God's standard. If you look at Matthew 16, part of it, at least uh, in most translations, will be capitalized. All in capitals. And that's to indicate that it's a quotation or paraphrase of an Old Testament passage. That, that, that passage there um, is, is telling us the, that it, this is based in God's law, in his Old Testament law. Leviticus 19.15, I think, if I remember correctly. Corrective discipline needs to move forward with helpers, with witnesses. Corrective discipline starts privately and then progressively seeks a wider audience as only as needed to help the person turn from their sins. So who should you ask? Whom should you ask to help you? Who could serve as a helper in this case? Who could serve as these witnesses, as, a, as Jesus calls them? Well, you need to just think about your goal. Your goal is not to bash the person on the head and beat them down. Your goal is to help them see their fault, help them turn from their sin, and honor Christ. So you need to think through, who would that other person listen to? If that person has some friends within the church, and they should, but think about who his most influential friends are that are still spiritually mature. Don't go recruit your best friends, because what's going to happen? Right? The other person is going to pick up on those are your best friends and they're just they're not going to be objective as they should be. Or they, there's a potential for that anyway. So think about people that the other person might listen to. Who, who are the influencers in his life that are within the church that can help you, that are spiritually mature? So you want to build a team that's most likely to succeed. 
So think that through. Now, when you're building the team, when you're going to seek help from others, you got to give careful consideration to how you recruit those helpers. Jesus doesn't address this. He simply assumes this. But when you go recruit the others, you don't want to do this. Would you help me work things out? Like, let's say that Jim was doing this. Jim goes to somebody and says, boy, Carl is just a big pain in the you-know-what. He is so sinning against me. And he just lists all the things that Carl is doing wrong and all the ways that Carl has sinned. And then he says, would you come help me confront him? What, is, what has he done? He's just biased totally. He's biased that particular witness against Carl from the very start. And that witness is now, you can't undo that. And so when that, when that witness goes to Carl, he's got that bias. What you want to do is recruit people in such a way that doesn't bias them against the other person. Because you're seeking truth. You're seeking to honor God. You're not seeking to get your way and manipulate your way. So you recruit people by simply saying, Jim could simply say to, to another one of uh, the men in the church, I'm having relational difficulty with Carl. I need your help to work that out. Would you be willing to go with me and help me work that out? Right? And, and you're just giving them the basics. They might ask, is it a financial difficulty? If so, you might want someone that's good in finances. But, but you don't give them any details that would bias them uh, for you or against Carl. And that's hard to do. Because right? you, you and I are going to approach this like we want to win this case, right? I mean, he sinned against me. I want to show him that. Right? But understand that there's, you might have sinned too. So you really do want someone to be objective. You want to honor God in this. And to do that, you, you need someone who is objective. So you approach each potential helper privately and simply tell them that you need help working out a conflict with the person. Right? This process works the same as someone is, let's say, believing uh, doctrine that's so bad that it has to be addressed. Right? So it works the same way. So you could say, would you please come help me go talk with this person who's believing something that's doctrinally inerrant. It's unhealthy for them to believe, right? But, but you know, you, you try to say as little as you can um, so that the witness is ob as objective as they can be. Now, what's the purpose of these helpers? Well, Jesus calls them witnesses. And there's, a, there's a, some, some people think that that's witnesses to the person's sin. That's, that's not what's going on here, right? So you see the sin and... These are called witnesses, but they're not witnesses to the sin. Because right? there's lots of sins where it's just maybe private. Just the two of you uh, have some relational difficulty. So these people are, are counselors. They're mediators. They're helpers who become witnesses if the process continues. So Jesus calls them witnesses because if this moves to step three, they're going to become witnesses. And what are they witness to? They're witness to the fact that you've gone and you've confronted the person biblically, right, with gentleness and in an appropriate way, and the person has failed to respond, right? They can confirm the facts of the case. They become witnesses to the facts of the case as that comes out through the through church. So they're witnesses to those things, not necessarily the person's original sin. Now, when you meet together with the, the witnesses, so you, you gather your witnesses, you call the person up and you set up a time to meet with them, and you meet with them. And when, when you all meet together, it's helpful then if you lay out the 
everything that you know about the situation, about how you saw the person sin or the person sinned against you, and you, you give them all those details. You talk about how you prepared to go, and then you went, and how the person responds. The other person may or may not interrupt you, and the mediators might have to stop things and say, okay, one person at a time. But they, they just listen to both sides of what's going on. And then they're going to ask questions if they're wise. They're going to ask some probing questions to make sure they understand the situation. And you have to be prepared for the fact that they might actually see something that you should have done differently. And, and so you have to be open. You have to be teachable with that. Right? There's none of us that, that are experts in conflict resolution. And if there are, there's maybe problems in your life. I'm not sure. But, you know, we don't want to be too good at this. But we want to follow the Lord's instructions, right? So that we obey him. So you're going, you're going to make mistakes along the way, but you're learning, right? So just be teachable through this. And where you realize that you said something harshly instead of gently, and confess that a sin, ask the person to forgive you, right? You're learning, you're growing. Right? So they're going to ask questions. They're going to make a recommendation. They may decide... That right now, the best thing is if they meet with the two of you on a regular basis, they might recommend, let's set up some meetings and try to work through this. So maybe it's not resolved in that first initial meeting, but the person agrees to that meeting. But let's say the person uh, doesn't um, agree to any of those meetings. and And they totally, the witnesses agree with you that the person has sinned against you and the person just refused to listen. Then, Then what do you do? Well, then it's time to move to step three of the corrective discipline process. And remember, too, that moving this forward isn't just your decision. You've engaged witnesses, and those witnesses need to agree with you. Because they're going to be witnesses in the next stage. So you, you can't really move forward if all of you aren't in agreement on moving this forward to step three, which is telling it to the church. Now, let's, let's go back to the illustration with Carl and Jim, because it helps us to see uh, to obey this if we see how this fleshes out. So Jim asked another businessman in the church and an elder of the church to go with him to speak to Carl. Being sure not to tell them too much, not being sure not to bias them against Carl in any way. He just tells them he needs help working out a, a relationship issue uh, and, and a business issue. At this meeting, Jim again tells Carl that he's sinning by not paying him. And again, reminding him of appropriate scripture verses that would call Carl to pay Jim what he owes. Uh, Carl responds by calling Jim a whiner. And one who doesn't understand that all businesses take losses at times and just tells them to kind of suck it up. And additionally, he accuses Jim of malicious gossip and adds that Jim's work was just subpar, so it shouldn't be paid for it anyway. Now, as the two witnesses listen carefully without comment, they then ask a few questions. And both witnesses, in this case, agree that Carl has sinned against Jim by not paying him. And then he's wrong in, in trying to deflect what's going on by, by uh, calling out Carl's uh, so-called sin, by finding fault with Carl. Uh, sorry, finding fault with Jim. And they also point out that, that Jim's workers are not being paid, are not able, Jim's not able to pay them the full amount that he owes them because of Carl's non-payment. So it's not just a sin between Jim and Carl. And, and they rebuke Carl for trying to, to transfer the blame and, and suggesting, um, and they suggest to Carl they lay out some kind of payment plan for paying Jim. 
But Carl refuses, saying his business just can't afford to pay the bill. At this point, he becomes very aggressive, not physically, but verbally. He claims he's been deeply hurt by all three men. And he does what many people do. I'm going to get a lawyer. If you pursue this any further, I'm getting a lawyer and I'm coming after you. So you better drop it. What do the three men do? Well, what would you do? What would you do if you find yourself in a situation in which another Christian from your church refuses to acknowledge their sin against you and even threatens legal action if you tell anybody else or take this further? Well, most Christians today would just drop the matter. They would. They'd drop the matter without love covering the sin. In other words, the relationship is totally fractured. And most churches would just totally turn a blind eye to what's going on between Carl and Jim. And they would just turn a blind eye until finally either Jim or Carl get so fed up that one of them leaves the church. And then the church kind of like lets down a deep cleansing sigh. Because the problem's gone, right? No, the problem's still there. Right? But the person has unfortunately gone. Most churches would disregard what Matthew 18 tells us to do, what the Lord tells us to do. But by doing so, listen to this very careful. By doing so, they prove themselves to be those who say, Lord, Lord, but completely disregard what he says. Hey, what does the word Lord mean again? We use it as kind of a title. It means master, right? So if there's a master, there's a slave. The slave does what the master says. So you have people that say, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, but then they don't do what the Master says. So they show themselves to be unbelievers. And this is something that Jesus brings up in Matthew 7. If you would turn your Bibles there, I think it's very important for us to consider. It's very sobering. Matthew 7. This is in a context where Jesus is, is kind of He's dealt with uh, or preached about the, the narrow gate that leads to eternal life, the broad gate that most people are on that leads to destruction. He's talked about the knowing, uh, watching out for false teachers, that you'll know them by their fruits. So that's kind of the background. And then kind of beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, what? look at his words, not, I used to know you or, you know, I just don't think you're living up to my standards, so I, I kind of going to reject you. No, he says what? I never knew you. Never knew you. So these, these people who are doing religious things, casting out demons, even performing miracles, Jesus doesn't challenge that, doesn't deny that. And they might be even doing it while they call on the name of Christ. But Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. And he, he flows, this, this kind of this idea flows right into verse um, uh, 24, but I missed the end of 23. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is rebellion. 
So they're characterized by rebellion. It's not that they just disobeyed once or twice. Don't misunderstand it. They practice lawlessness. They are constantly saying, Lord, Lord, but doing their own thing. Verse 24 uh, begins with the kind of connector, therefore, right, which connects the two ideas together, two verses together. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds, who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. What's the difference between the two? They both heard Jesus' words. The one acted on them is compared to a man who builds his house with a good foundation that can withstand a storm. But the person who didn't, who heard the words but didn't act on them is compared to a man who builds his house on the sand. No solid foundation. When the storm comes, it washes out the foundation, the house tilts, and it completely collapses. That analogy is not just talking about physical buildings, but it's talking about spiritual, the spiritual building of your house, what your house is built on. Now, beloved, you know, most furniture today, if you go look at your furniture at home, most of your furniture isn't real furniture. Well, it's real furniture, but it's not made of real wood. It's made out of particle board with a thin veneer. If it's really cheap stuff, it just has a little chemical uh, layer on it. Right, little chemical film. If it's the better stuff, then you've got kind of like a thin layer of, of nice looking wood. Right? But it's really thin. So it's really easy to rub that finish off or to, you know, for it to get dented or scratched. Or somehow you, you see that it just is chipped and there's just no way really to fix it and make it look good. Right? It just shows you there's a, shit, a thin veneer of that. It's a good analogy for some people who call themselves Christians. They have a very thin veneer of Christianity. They go to church. They might even read the Bible. Right? They might sing in the choir. They might go to the men's study or the women's study. But it's a thin veneer. And when relational conflict comes and rubbing comes or chips come, it, it kind of exposes the fact that they're not really at their heart a converted Christian. That, that, is, that description or that analogy describes many people today who call themselves Christians. A, a great number of people call themselves Christians who are not genuinely Christian at, at the heart. If you are not willing to obey the Lord's instructions here laid out in Matthew 18, maybe you're one of those veneer Christians that, that just want to follow God while following is easy you need a complete change of heart when god changes someone he changes you from the inside not to be perfect but he he changes your way of thinking your total outlook is changed and and the process of that change is called being born again uh, jesus mentions this in john 3 3 I'll just quote it to you. John 3, 3. There Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
So remember who he's talking to, Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is called, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. That means he was the top guy. He knew a lot of facts about the Bible. He knew a lot of theology. But he wasn't born again. I fear that a lot of people in church today are just like that. They have a lot of theology. They know a lot about God. But they're just like Nicodemus. They're not born again. And remember, beloved, that in James 2.19, James tells us that even the demons believe that God is one. And how the demons respond? They shudder. They're fearful. But do they obey Jesus? Do they obey God? No, they don't. So there are Christians, or so-called Christians today, maybe even here this morning, and you have a fear of veneer of Christianity, but not a changed heart. You could agree that God is one and that, that God is a creator and that, that Jesus is the Savior, but you know that you're not obeying the Lord. Now hear me, beloved. Obedience doesn't save anyone. None of us are, could ever meet God's standards for obedience to earn salvation. But obedience is not the engine of salvation. It's not the engine of conversion. You can't live a certain way and then maybe God will save me. Yeah, how come and I were talking with some Catholics this week and they were trying to, to start a new ascetic routine in their life. Ascetic is like more strict routine. And they believed in God. They believed in Christ died for their sins. Right? But they were still in the, in the mode of being, they were hoping that they would be good enough to get into heaven. That doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it for me. It doesn't cut it for you. You've got to trust Christ and Christ alone. You do need to be born again, but that's not something that you can do. Now, I want to borrow an analogy from Paul Washer this morning to help us understand the connection between being born again and a changed life. Right? To help you understand. Right? You might believe, you might assent, but are you born again? Well, think about this analogy. Suppose another church asked me to teach at their conference. And on the day of the conference, I happened to show up two hours after the time slot I was supposed to speak. What's the, what's the event organizer going to ask me? Well, the first thing he's going to ask me is, what, what happened? Why are you late? And I look at him and say, well, I was late because I was crossing the street. This 20-ton truck ran me over. And that's made me late. And the guy looks at me. And he sees that I'm not on crutches. And he sees that my tie and suit are immaculate. And he's going to look at me rather strange, like I've lost my mind. Okay? Why? Because we know that if someone got run over by a 40,000 pound truck, they're not going to look the same, right? <laughs> Something is going to be messed up, right? At least the suit's going to be dirty, you know, at the, at, at the very least. But that analogy helps us understand that when God changes your life, he changes it in a way 
that's totally different. It's impossible for you to be born again and think the same way. So if you believe that God is one and you believe that Jesus died for your sins, but there's not that transform, transformation of heart within you, you may not have been born again. So, so how are you born again? How are you born again? I can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. But I know the one who can do it for you. And he's willing to do it for you if you will receive him. John 3, verses 12 and 13 tell us this, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The new birth comes from above, from God, through faith in Jesus Christ. If you genuinely receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's only by the will of God and it is his will to give you new spiritual life. And I know there are some of you here who have very sensitive consciousness and sometimes you think, well, I don't know, I, I want to follow Christ, but I don't know if I've, if I've been genuine enough, right? So I understand that there's some people with a very sensitive conscience about that. So you're always wondering, is my faith enough? Beloved, your salvation is not in the quality of your faith, you go back to the word of God and cast yourself upon the word of God and you trust the word of God and do not doubt and keep on praying for the Lord to transform you until you're sure he is answered. He will. Sometimes he waits to see how much you want him. He wants you to seek him with all of your heart. But he's not going to turn anybody away. Don't ever fool yourself into that. When I was counseling someone in seminary, a man came in off the street and said he was going to commit suicide and asked me to convince him not to do that. Right? So I tried to talk to him and tell him of love. He was convinced that he was one of the non-elect. He'd convinced himself he was the non-elect. And so might as well just go kill himself. And I was pleading with him not to do that, but he would not listen. Don't be that way. It's not your job to decide whether you are the elect or the non-elect. Your job is to believe in Christ and receive him. And if you do that, I'll tell you, you're in the elect. But it's not your job to figure out that ahead of time. It's your job to call upon the name of the Lord. You have such a merciful God. He is so holy and righteous. He deserves to wipe us out today. Totally. No further. But God's patient, not willing that any should perish, but all to come to eternal life. That doesn't mean everyone's going to come to eternal life, but all who he calls. And there's some that he has called that have not yet come in to the family. So he is patient. Why would you want to turn that offer down? It is not for you to consider, am I the elect, part of the elect or not? Your job is to believe in Jesus Christ Believe in him. What does that mean? Believe. We talk about it. It's not the same kind of belief that the demons believe. That's not just head knowledge. That's trust. You all are sitting in chairs, right? What did you do when you sat down? You trusted the chair that it was strong enough to hold you up. So trusting in Christ is just that. You trust that his righteousness is enough to get you into heaven. His righteousness is enough to forgive you. So whoever trusts in Christ 
will not be disappointed. If you haven't trusted in Christ today, do that. Do it now, privately, quietly. Talk to your God. Don't delay. Don't put it off. You don't know how long you will have, even if you're young. You will not live forever. The Lord gives you today. He's giving you now. And through my voice, he is pleading with you to be reconciled with him today, right now. Call upon him. He will not turn you away. No one who calls upon the name of the Lord will be disappointed. He's the only one who can save you from the wrath of God's judgment to come. It's your duty to believe. It's your privilege to believe. And it's God's mercy that calls you to believe. Why would you want to turn that down? Now, beloved, my, those who are my brothers and sisters this morning, it is your job to pursue reconciliation with each other with others. And I know that even within a Bible-believing, very loving, conservative church like ours, there's, there's going to be conflicts. You're going to be offended. You're going to be sinned against. Most of the time, it's going to be accidental and unintentional. But even where you question the motives of the other person, you have a duty and a responsibility to go. The grace of God urges you to go. God didn't wait for you to come to him because you never would have been saved. He went to you. You go to the other person. And you love them. And you love God enough to go reconcile. No matter how difficult it becomes. We are pushing against the culture on this. Because the culture doesn't do this. Especially the church culture today. I have not done a survey and I have not seen a survey on this. But I know that it is a very small percentage of churches that actually practice this. Right? So we as a church need to be practicing this today. It starts in your families. It starts in your friendships. It starts with you today to commit to practice this with one another. And by practicing this with one another, it will help you to grow in Christ to love each other, to love God and honor him and for us to be the church that God calls us to be. You know, Mark Dever runs a ministry called the, the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. This corrective discipline, what he calls church discipline, is one of those marks. A church cannot be healthy without this. There is no other way. We can't just overlook it. If we overlook it, we disregard God, right? That's sin against us. And our church will not be healthy. We can give the appearance of healthiness, but we won't be healthy. So we have got to commit ourselves to pursuing reconciliation with one another. And, and maybe the person doesn't sin against you. You see a sin. We, we're going in love. We're going to rescue one another. This is not something that we can put off for another day. So ask the Lord for his help to do this. And maybe you need to confess your failures to him. And most of us, if not all of us in this room, have failed to do what we should do regarding this and the way we should have done it. The good news is that God's so gracious. You confess your sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another way to look at that being born again is that internal cleaning of your conscience that only Jesus can do. Only God can do that. And if you confess your sins to him, he's faithful, he's just. He forgives you taken care of 
Just ask him to help you move forward. Maybe you need to go ask the other person for forgiveness as well, uh, where, where, the, where that's possible. So if someone comes, if, if someone, sorry, someone sins against you and you can't let love cover it, you go to them. You go and you patiently plead with them. You show them their fault. If they don't respond, then you carefully select and recruit two witnesses who can be as unbiased as possible, who are spiritually mature, to help resolve the conflict. And if the person doesn't respond even to them, then you move to the third step, which we'll look at next week. Right? And we'll talk about what that looks like. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, but just in a collective sense, we all have to admit that we failed to follow Matthew 18. We've all been, been part of churches, I think, in one, one sense or another, who have failed to commit themselves to corrective church discipline for the good and health of your body and for the just out of love for you. Lord God, I just ask that you would make each soul here committed to pursuing biblical reconciliation for the glory of God. Lord, help us to be committed. Help us to be teachable. Help us to be obedient. Help us to run with great eagerness the race that you have set before us in, in the grace that you supply, with the strength that you supply, just knowing that, that you are running ahead of us to prepare good deeds that we would walk in them and that people's hearts would be changed and that you would use us to help this church be healthier and sounder, that you would, that you would use us to help our families be healthier and, and sounder for your glory. We just ask that you would do